0: We are in a sermon series called gathering stones right now and it's a reference to ecclesiastes that says there's a time to cast stones and a time to gather stones together and this idea of gathering stones together is this idea of building community and connecting people to one another And we're going through these resurrection narratives in the Gospels to try and glean from them what it looks like for Jesus to gather stones together. What is it that connects us together as a church? What connects us together in Jesus? Today we come to um, this fantastic story in the book of John. It's in chapter 21. I'm going to read the text in just a second, but I want to say just a couple of things. First, I'm going to read this text, and my sermon today is um, pointing out things in this story that I find really interesting, curious, and if, as I'm reading, there's something that strikes you as interesting or curious, I would invite you, if you type on the live feed, to share that with people, like, wow, I find this really interesting in this passage, or I never thought of this before, or I didn't notice this previously. Um, Feel free to do that. And then uh, the last thing I want to say is I know that the last couple of weeks my predecessor, good friend, uh, the good Dr. Reverend uh, Will Healy has been tuning in. And Will, I'm taking a couple of notes out of your old preaching uh, bucket. and We'll see if you can find where I've stole all your good material. Okay. The book of John, chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And in these Bibles... It is on page 873. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. Uh, They couldn't recognize him. He called out, Children, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they could not haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. The disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat, Hold the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard, dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, And yet the net was not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you pleased. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. May God bless the reading of this word and let us pray. God, open our hearts and open our minds to hear what it is you have for us this day. And insofar as the words that I preach, O God, or what you want us to hear, use them? And if not, then help these words to fall to the ground. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So what stood out to you? What stood out to you in this story? I would like to share just some of the things that stood out to me. The first thing that stood out to me, maybe you caught this too, is that before Peter jumped into the water, he put his tunic on. He put his clothes on, then jumped into the water, uh, getting, of course, all wet. That seems a little odd. That seems a little odd to me, I was a little rattled, because the, um, the camera moved. But I should just trust those in the back. <laughs> Why would he put his clothes on and then jump into the water? Um, There may be a few reasons why, but when I read this story, here's where my mind goes. I think of Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve. You might know the story that Adam and Eve, they were formed and fashioned by God. They were in the garden where God walked with them. They could eat from any tree they wanted. There was one tree, however, they were not supposed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And it says that they were were naked and unashamed. Of course, they get tricked by the serpent. They eat from the very tree they're not supposed to eat from. And two things change right away. First, they notice that they are naked, that they are exposed, and they put together some fig leaves and they make themselves clothing. And the second one is that when they hear God coming to Uh, into the garden, they hide. So they put on clothing and they hide from God. And then God says to Adam, Adam, where are you? As though God didn't know. And Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked. Uh, He was exposed. He learned something about himself he hadn't previously known. That's what I think of when I think of Peter putting on his clothes, and jumping into the water. I wonder if this is a way that Peter is covering himself and hiding, maybe. Someone said to me this week, uh, Abe, I've been spending a lot more time in my own head and thinking, uh, right, noticing my own thoughts and spending time there, and I've come to discover that I don't know if I'm all that interesting of a person. (laughs) I assured them you're interesting, you know, but it is times like these. If we are willing to pay attention to ourselves, that we might discover things about ourselves, learn something new about ourselves. And I can't help, but think that Peter had learned some things about himself since the time when Jesus was um, convicted and tried and beaten and crucified I wonder if Peter learned some things about himself that maybe he wasn't very proud of. Much easier to cover himself and hide. You know, we, we all do things or things happen to us and we get hurt. We want to cover ourselves and hide. Uh, and I'm reminded of these words from Brene Brown. Maybe you know these words as well. Brene says that if you take shame and you put it in a Petri dish, and you mix it up with hiding and loneliness, it grows exponentially. But if you take that same shame, and you put it in a Petri dish, and you mix it up with empathy, shame cannot uh, live, cannot exist. At any rate, Peter does make his way to the shore, which brings me to another thing that I find very interesting in this story, and that is this. Maybe you notice this as well. John tells us that no one dared ask Jesus, who are you? Or is it, are you, is it you, Jesus? That, that seems like a strange detail to add because they knew it was the Lord. They had been spending night and day with Jesus for the past three years. You'd think they would not have to scratch their head and wonder, is this Jesus or, or not? Now, I mean, it, it is obvious in one sense Jesus had died, right? He was crucified. He was buried. He was dead. Now he's alive. This takes the brain probably a little bit to kind of um, come to terms with. I grant that. But I also wonder if there may have been something about Jesus' appearance that was different. Something about the way he, he, he looked even. Because this is not the first or only time where they come into contact with the risen Jesus and they don't recognize him. Just last week on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him. He appears to them in the upper room. They think it's a ghost. And he has to show them you know, the hands and the side before they realize it is him. Jesus had entered a place that no human before him had ever entered and no human since has ever entered. And that is new resurrection life, which is the ultimate hope for those who follow Jesus for a Christian. New resurrection life, to die, to pass through death, to, as Paul writes, take the, the, the perishable and put on the imperishable to take what is mortal, these bodies of ours, and put on what is immortal, that does not decay, that does not die. And that was the body Jesus ha- had and has now, too. This is our ultimate hope. Not that we would be you know, disembodied spirits floating around in, in this place we refer to as heaven, but that we will have, after death, resurrected bodies. That's the Christian hope. So what does God use to gather us together? Well, Peter was trying to put things on. Jesus was in a resurrected body. I think these are clues to what it is that God brings us together. Okay, here's another interesting detail. 153 fish. Let's strike anyone else as uh, an odd detail that is put in there. Kind of weird, right? 153 fish. Now, it could be that this detail is offered by John simply because that's exactly how many fish they caught. Though this is not the kind of thing that gospel writers typically give us. It's just these sort of random numerical details. Usually there's something to this beyond 153. Um, and, you know, we all know fishermen. They like to kind of, they, for all we know, maybe they caught eight fish and then suddenly now it's 153 fish and they're all about this big, right? Boop. Now, if you love numbers and getting geeked out on this kind of thing, go Google 153 fish. You are going to find all kinds of options that people through the centuries have offered to help us understand why 153 fish. For example, as early as St. Augustine, he noticed that this is a triangular number of the number 17, and if you take the number 10, which represents the law, and the number 7, which for him represents the Spirit, you get the number uh, 153 when you do some math. Seems kind of interesting, though my eyebrows go up. Um, As early as scholar named Jerome, he, he noted that there were zoologists in the ancient world who identified 153 types of fish, and perhaps this is a reference to all the different types of people, right, who will receive the gospel in the world. Others, um, such as a, a scholar named Richard Bacham have identified that the numerical value of um, the term son of God in Hebrew adds up to 153. And so maybe this is a, a reference that maybe Jesus is saying to the disciples, you are the sons of God. Very interesting stuff. But when we couple this detail that 153 fish were caught with the next thing that was said about them, that the net was not torn, I, I, I happen to think, I like the interpretations that go in the direction of sharing the gospel in the world. That, that Jesus said to these same men, you will be fishers of men and you will go out and you will share the good news of God's kingdom. And many will come and enter the kingdom, and the nets will not burst, right? There's room for everyone. I like the views on this number that connect this catch of fish to the call that these men now will have to go out into the nations and be ambassadors of Christ. And it makes me wonder, how can we, any one of us who are listening right now, how can we be ambassadors of Jesus in our normal, everyday, day-to-day places? What is God doing in our lives right now? Where are the places where we sense that there's no catch of fish or that our lives as ambassadors of Jesus seem dry? Let us listen to Jesus, where he is calling us to cast our nets. Because just because something isn't working doesn't mean you should give up. It means we should listen to Jesus and do what he asks us to do. Okay, there's lots of other details that are interesting. Hopefully, you've shared some. But I want to land on this last point. And it's this conversation with Peter at the very kind of end. So they're done eating. And now Jesus has this one on one conversation with Peter where Jesus offers Peter the chance to declare his love for Jesus three times. Three times. And it seems to me that one of the things Jesus is doing here is healing a memory. As you may recall, it was at a charcoal fire that Peter denied Jesus three times. And yes, there's forgiveness in Jesus. If we confess to Jesus our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sins can be forgiven and cleansed, but memories, they're a little trickier sometimes because memories stick with us. And every time Peter would smell like smoke or stood at a fire, he would remember the time he denied his Lord Jesus three times. And it seems to me that here, Jesus is healing a memory, right? Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. And of course, Jesus follows each one of those up with this phrase, then feed my sheep, which I think is really important and powerful. How do we demonstrate our love for Jesus? Because what Jesus told Peter was, then feed my sheep. We can demonstrate a love for Jesus in in, in lots of ways, but the one that Jesus clarifies and makes uh, uh, explicit here is to feed his sheep, to care for each other, to love one another, to make sure no one is kind of forgotten. And so Peter gets kind of this second chance, if you will, a second chance. Which reminds me of this story of a 16-year-old girl and she gets her keys to her new car. It's not a new car. Um, many 16-year-olds' dreams are dashed when they see what they'll be driving. For me, it was a 1979 Toronado. I was not excited, but um, hey, I could drive. So The girl is out driving, and she um, gets in a car accident. She's okay, but the car is totaled, and... I don't know if you've ever been in a car accident, but all the things that race through your mind, they're racing through her mind. Plus this thought, Mom and Dad will never let me drive again. Mom and Dad show up to the scene, and after the, you know, are you okay, honeys, and the uh, checking with uh, the, the police officer and exchanging insurance information and the tow truck and seeing that the car's been totaled, After all of that, mom says, okay, it's time to go home. And at that point, dad takes the keys to the family car, hands them to his daughter, and says, I think you're going to need to drive us home. So I think about that. So my son William, who's uh, one, he's learning to walk. And it's, it's step, wobble, wobble, step, wobble, wobble, kerplunk. That's kind of where he's at. Step, wobble, wobble, step, wobble, wobble, kerplunk. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed or watched a parent respond to step, wobble, wobble, step, wobble, wobble, kerplunk. But if you have, have you ever seen a parent after that moment stand up, hands at the hips, and say to their child, you're going to have to do better than that. Don't you try that again until you can get that right. Have you ever seen that? Because I have not. How does a parent respond? When their child is step, wobble, wobble, step, wobble, wobble, kerplunk, and then what does the parent do? What's their response? What's the reaction? What image comes to mind? Because as we follow Jesus, as we take steps in our faith, and we step, wobble, wobble, step, wobble, wobble, kerplunk, what is God's response? What image comes to mind? Let us pray. God, as we come to the table and prepare to take communion together wherever we are, I pray that we would be reminded yet again of this great sacrifice Jesus made, that we might be children of God, that we would receive an amazing commissioning, and that even when our steps are shaky, you are there to support us and empower us, grant us courage and the faith to take another step. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus who loves us. Amen.